The book of Acts is often referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, but I prefer to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because broadly speaking, it is about the spread of the early church through the inspiration, guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. And there are three main phases or parts to the book of Acts. The first part is about Jesus returning to heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the growth of the church in Jerusalem. The third part, and I'm going to come back to the second part in a moment, but the third part is about the growth of the church throughout the known world. So part one, growth of the church in Jerusalem. Part three, growth of the church in the world. And in between, you have part two, which is about the church's transition from Jewish movement to worldwide mission. Part two includes the account of Philip preaching to the Samaritans. You remember that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on. It also includes Philip baptizing the first African convert, the Ethiopian uh, official or eunuch. Uh, It includes Saul's conversion and he becomes known as the Apostle Paul. And it includes the story of Cornelius, a Roman centurion and the first Gentile convert to Christianity who came to faith through Peter's ministry. But part two begins with a young man named Stephen, and it tells us about his arrest, his speech to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and his subsequent execution. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Stephen's story occupies most of Acts chapters six and seven, and there are two key things that come across really strongly. Firstly, the inevitability of persecution, maybe not for all Christians, but certainly for the church as a whole. Secondly, it becomes evident that this event marks the beginning of a new phase in the church's history, the mission to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. The gospel is about to go out into all the world. But I want to start today by recognising the Jewishness of Christianity, the Jewishness of Christianity. And that might sound like an odd thing to say, but it's actually a very logical way of putting it, because Christianity stems from Judaism. When we think about Christianity and Judaism, we tend to think that the Jews rejected uh, Jesus, rejected Christianity, but all the first Christians were Jewish. In fact, it took a little time for the early church to work out that non-Jews, Gentiles, could become Christian without first becoming Jewish and all that that entailed, including circumcision. So they thought, well, for someone to be part of the church, they first got to become Jewish, get circumcised and all the rest of it. Uh, But that, of course, is not the case. And we should remember that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is the event to which the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, is pointing. Or we might accept that all of Jesus' first followers were Jewish, but we assume that the Jewish religious authorities, that the religious leaders rejected Jesus and Christianity. We're so used to reading that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, scribes, teachers of the law were opposed to Jesus and the early church. But then we have chapter 6, verse 7, which says this. So the word of God spread, 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So a large number of priests decided to follow Jesus. So it's easy to miss that. Uh, and then there was the conversion of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the lightly conversion of Gamaliel, another Pharisee, and then uh, Saul's conversion by his own admission. He was the most zealous of Pharisees. We must not assume that all the Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus. I watched a testimony by a Jewish man, Mordecai uh, Mottel Bailston, uh, and we've included his testimony in the playlist for this service so you can see it in full. And he came to faith in Jesus, but here's what he said about his experience of reading the New Testament for the first time. He said, when I opened the New Testament, I was expecting a handbook on how to persecute the Jews because that's what my grandparents had told me. And yet I'm opening it. I'm reading a story written by Jews about Jewish people. The New Testament was a fascinating book. I opened it and here's the first sentence. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three people are mentioned and they're all Jewish. I was really shocked. And as I continue to read, I'm reading a story about a Jewish man who was born in a Jewish village in a Jewish country. And one day he walks into the synagogue and announces that he is the Messiah. So we acknowledge the Jewishness of Christianity. The most Jewish thing that a Jewish person can do is follow Jesus. Notwithstanding, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, did hand Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Uh, they did forbid Peter and John to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. They did seize season, uh, uh, Stephen, and that uh, led to his um, execution, and they did persecute the early church. Well, if the Jews persecuted Jewish Christians for following a Jewish Messiah, you can be sure that non-Jews, Gentiles, will persecute Christians. Persecution is inevitable. So we come to the story of Stephen. In the early part of chapter six, we read that he was full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom and grace. God was working powerfully through him. This is a man who is on fire for God. He was performing wonders and signs and preaching in the name of Jesus. And almost straight away, he started to face opposition. Jews from a certain synagogue who started to argue with him. But we're told that they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. That's what Jesus said would happen, isn't it? In, uh, in Luke 12, uh, 11 to 12, it says this. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about what you about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. That's what Jesus said. And that's what uh, happened to Stephen. So when they can't effectively argue against him, they start their smear campaign. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded or maybe even paid some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And then Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, verse 13. They produce false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against 
the law. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The last time that false witnesses were called in, it was to accuse Jesus. So they're saying that Stephen is speaking blasphemy against Moses and against God, that he's speaking against the holy place, the temple, uh, and against the law. That The accusations couldn't be more damning. They're basically saying this man is trying to bring down everything that we hold dear. He must be stopped. So Stephen makes quite a long speech and we're just going to look at it in outline. But I really encourage you to read it in full. Go back to uh, chapter six and seven and read them in your own time, especially chapter seven. Stephen's speech is a brilliant summary of a large uh, chunk of the Old Testament. And to, to read it would be to really improve your um, biblical knowledge and understanding of uh, of the Bible. He talks about Abraham and the patriarchs. He talks about Joseph and all that went on in Egypt. He talks about Moses and the Exodus. He talks about King David and Solomon and the building of the temple. And he makes two main points. Uh, that God is always with his people, no matter where they happen to be. The temple is not all important. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah saying, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In other words, do you really think that you can contain the God of the universe in this little temple? Uh, the second point that Stephen makes is that every prophet that God has sent to Israel has been persecuted, abused and rejected. He's saying you're making the same mistake as your ancestors, the same mistake that's been made in every generation. If someone told you that your great, great, great grandfather ate a peanut and died, for example, and that your great, great grandfather did the same thing and your great grandfather and your grandfather and your father, they all died from eating a peanut and you knew that. And then one day somebody offered you a packet of peanuts. Well, you'd think twice about eating one, wouldn't you? And it's a bit like that with the Jewish leaders. They knew their scriptures. They knew that every generation had persecuted the prophets and rebelled against God. They knew that miraculous things were happening, that Stephen had performed signs and wonders. They had more than enough evidence, and yet they are making the exact same mistake as their ancestors. And actually, I think we can see a similar pattern for all human error throughout history, because we do keep making the same mistakes. Mankind is in rebellion against God. That is why. And Stephen hits the nail on the head when he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That was addressed to the Sanhedrin, but it could equally be addressed to the whole of humanity. And that is the fundamental reason why Christians face persecution. Yes, of course, it's complex and there are all sorts of reasons that Christians are persecuted. Authoritarian governments who view Christianity as a threat to power, extremist groups who want to destroy Christians, uh, official and cultural domination of a single religion, uh, the repression of religious freedom, and so on and so on. But underlying all that is humanity's propensity to resist the Spirit of God. I read a BBC article last year with the title Christians are most persecuted group. And the article stated that the persecution of Christians in parts of the world is at near genocide levels. 
Open Doors, an organization that monitors Christian persecution, uh, said on its website that all over the world, persecution against Christians is rising both in frequency and intensity. Today, 260 millions, uh, million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. At the extreme end of the scale, resistance to the Holy Spirit leads to the killing of Christ's followers. Stephen was the first person to die because of his allegiance to Christ, and millions have died since that time. Today, Christians are being killed at a rate of around 100,000 per year. But let's focus on Stephen because his death is described in some detail. Suffice to say that his speech didn't go down well. Verse 54 says this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's interesting that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is normally said to be seated at God's right hand. Uh, it's almost as if Jesus stood up to welcome the first Christian martyr into heaven. And Stephen says as much to this group of men who are gnashing their teeth at him. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If they were furious before, they must by now have been incandescent with rage. And they covered their ears. They couldn't bear to hear the truth. They all rushed forward. They grabbed Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him to death. It was an illegal action, by the way, because the Romans didn't permit the Jews to carry out capital punishment. That's why the Sanhedrin had to take Jesus before the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate in order to have him crucified. The stoning of Stephen was unjust, barbaric and evil. It was an extreme example of what happens when the Holy Spirit is resisted and all other means of resistance fail. And the connection between the church as a Jewish movement and the church as a worldwide mission was there in the crowd, a Pharisee known as Paul of Tarsus. And the allusion to Saul, sorry, Saul of Tarsus. And the allusion to Saul is quite subtle, but it's there. Verse 58. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then at the end, it says that, well, actually, it's the first verse of chapter eight. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. Saul would, of course, later give his life to Jesus. And he changed his name to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who would become the missionary to the non-Jewish world and the greatest evangelist and church planter in history. It's no coincidence that Saul was there on the scene of Stephen's death. So the Jewish authorities didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they had him killed. Post-resurrection, they refused to recognize the truth and power of the gospel and they began killing Jesus's followers. Following Jesus was and is the most uh, Jewish thing to do, but the Jewish authorities rejected Jesus and persecuted his followers. Not all of them, not all the uh, religious leaders did that, but on the whole, that was their response. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. After all, having a relationship with our creator, with the living God, is the most human thing we can do. And yet many, if not most in our culture, pass up that opportunity. The stoning of Stephen precedes 
fierce persecution. Not surprisingly, the church scatters. And this is closely followed by the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. The Jews, on the whole, had rejected the gospel. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus, gets taken out into the world. And the scattering of Christians, Christians fleeing persecution, no doubt increased the spread of the gospel. The stoning of Stephen was almost like a turning point and the subsequent evangelization of the nations was a unique event in world history. Christianity spread rapidly throughout the pagan Roman Empire and beyond. No movement or religion has ever expanded in this way with such rapidity. Some might argue that Islam did, but Islam uh, was spread largely by the sword through military conquest. Now, that's not a, an accusation. That's a historical fact. It's interesting that a key argument for atheists goes something like this. They say, if you were born in a Hindu country, then you'll be a Hindu. If you're born in a Muslim country, you'll be a Muslim. If you're born in a Christian country, you'll be a Christian and so on. And they're basically saying that religious belief has nothing to do with truth. It's just got to do with where you were born. And so it's all meaningless and we can forget about it. But the story of Christianity refutes that at every turn. All the first believers were Jewish. And although, as we've seen, following Jesus is the most natural thing in the world for a Jew to do, it still required a radical change of perspective. Christianity then replaced paganism in the Roman world, completely uh, replaced it in a very short period of time. That, again, is unprecedented in world history. Today, the fastest growing church in the world is in China. China is hardly a bedrock of Christianity, traditionally speaking. Of the 10 countries where Christianity is growing fastest as a percentage of the overall population, none of those countries are traditionally Christian countries. Christianity is declining in many traditionally Christian countries and growing in many non-Christian countries. Given this trend, it's unlikely that persecution is going to decline. In fact, there's every chance that it will continue to increase. Ever since Stephen was martyred, Christians have faced persecution, initially from the Jews, but nowadays from uh, from people of many faiths and none. In fact, uh, communist regimes have often been the most oppressive towards Christians. We don't face real persecution here, but the world is changing. We cannot be certain what our children and grandchildren will face. And so we must raise a generation with a level of faith and commitment strong enough to handle whatever comes next. Because we know that the world will continue to resist the Holy Spirit, but we are mandated to go into the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who will receive the good news with joy and will respond to it. It's a difficult task. It's a daunting task. It is at times a dangerous task, but it is what we are called to do. We must speak out. We must speak up. We must proclaim the good news, come what may.